turn with me or listen on as I read just the first verse of Leviticus, but with the sense of continuation from the book of Exodus ending, chapter 40, we read, Now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting, saying, and I'll stop there for now, let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that long ago you spoke to Moses, and now uh, we, we hear uh, once more your voice in scripture, and you are still speaking, uh, even as Moses recorded all those words you said to him, and uh, so many other of the prophets and the apostles after them. Dear Lord, uh, we, we ask you that through the preaching that your voice might be heard once again through that of your messenger. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we begin here, what is our continued study of the Pentateuch or the, five, uh, the first five books of Moses, uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy, now the study of the third book, Leviticus, I must confess uh, something you, you may have guessed, and that is my reluctance uh, in preaching Leviticus. Uh, to, to some extent, that reluctance must have been obvious. I was uh, going out of my way to put up preaching it as long as possible, preaching a short series uh, in Malachi and then a standalone last week. Uh, and so I'll admit that. But at the same time, I wanted to be sure that I was ready to preach this book in a way that would be edifying to Christians in the 21st century. Let us be honest that all of the talk of sacrifice and ceremony and ritual that is found in the tabernacle here is not so easy to understand and and to comprehend even, especially as a point of abiding relevance for Christians, again, in the 21st century. The question which we have is, what do all of these regulations have to do with us? We are in the midst, you might say, of the shadows of the old covenant, but now we enjoy the substance and the reality. What do we have to do anymore with the shadows? Well, I'll get back to that at the very end of the sermon. But that's the question one has to ask and to answer when trying to understand this book, and especially to look at it in a detailed way, to listen to a prolonged series of sermons on the book of Leviticus. But now I think I am prepared to say that I'm ready to do it, and that I want to do it. I feel as though I have a good enough grasp of this book, and let me say, with the help of other books, I often say to my wife, I don't know what I would do without the commentaries, but thank God for them. Thank God for Bonar's commentary on Leviticus. Uh, thank God always for Matthew Henry. Uh, thank God for Voss's biblical theology and his section on the sacrifices in that book. Uh, and, and another wonderful book I became aware of, one of you gave it to me, that is a book by Morales, a, a Greenville Theological Seminary professor, which considers the theology of, Le- of Leviticus. Having spent some time in those books, I can say that I now not only feel prepared to, pre- to preach this book in a way that is edifying, but even I would go so far as to say that I have, I think, caught the burden of the book. And that I feel, therefore, a certain burden to preach it to you and that now I am eager to do so. But before we dive into what Matthew Henry calls, this is how he introduces the book and summarizes it, 
uh, Leviticus containing, he says, the, the ecclesiastical laws, that is the laws of the church in those days, concerning the sacrifices and offerings, the ordinances of worship, and there the quote ends. Before we look at that, all I want to do today and tonight is to look at the book as a whole. And I simply, in doing so, want to answer two questions, and that is, number one, what is Leviticus, and number two, what is the way to understand Leviticus? Well, Leviticus, very simply, is the third book of Moses. I've already said that. It's the third book of the Bible that Moses wrote or authored. The book of Leviticus is wonderful in many respects, but one of the most if not the most wonderful thing about it, is its setting. And this is what I think we we can appreciate when we read the end of Exodus together with the beginning of Leviticus. The setting of the book of Leviticus occurs almost entirely from the inner sanctum or the inner room, the Holy of Holies, where the ark and the mercy seat and the cherubim were placed. And we read at the end of Exodus that the tabernacle having been constructed That the glory of God inhabited the tabernacle and especially the inner room. So that God set up his abode amongst the people, ruling them from his throne, which was the mercy seat. And that is how Exodus ends. But immediately we read in Leviticus chapter 1 verse 1. Now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting, saying, the Lord has taken seat upon his throne, and now he begins to speak, just as he said he would, by the way. Earlier on in Exodus, we read that, that the Lord said he he would speak to Israel from his throne, from the mercy seat, and give Israel laws concerning him and his worship. That's what the Lord now begins to do. Let us see, therefore, how wonderful it is to have a book such as this, so full of the speech of God, addressed from the mercy seat. Not thundering from Mount Sinai, but gracious speech from the mercy seat. When we read in verse 1 that the Lord spoke from the tabernacle unto Moses, saying, the rest of the book is the speech of God. Speech, uh, which I say again, words to man full of mercy and grace, not words which thundered forth with fire from Sinai and terrified the people, such as we had in Exodus 20. But here were were words and speech which were full always of love and mercy. Gracious speech for sinners from the mercy seat. That's what Leviticus is. Now, when you realize that, It makes you, I hope, excited to study it. The great theme of God's, let's call it a sermon, or his speech, is that of atonement. And uh, as a corollary, the priesthood. Sacrifices, therefore, occupy a central place in the book, since it was by sacrifice that atonement was made. Sacrifices were to be performed by the priests on behalf of men before God. Uh, That's basically the, the definition of the priesthood that you get in Uh, Hebrews chapter 5 and Hebrews chapter 1. But we also see that the people themselves were able to offer sacrifices in the outer court at the altar. But in either case, whether by the people or by the priest, these were the sacrifices that were offered in the tabernacle, whether in the outer court or in the rooms, 
which was already set up in Exodus. The tabernacle has been completed. And now Leviticus tells us about the worship that occurred there in the tabernacle. Again, whether through the ministry of the priests or uh, simply the common offerings of the people. But since the greater part of the book concerns the ministry of the priests who were the Levites, it is therefore called, and I'm sure this is obvious, it is therefore called Leviticus. And so the principal theme is that of atonement, which was secured by the sacrifices of the priesthood and even of the people. And this is especially seen at the center of the book. Chapter 16 on the Day of Atonement. Rituals which occurred in the inner room by the high priest himself, going into the presence of God and appearing before his throne at the ark and the mercy seat. Atonement, which was uh, the goal of that day and of the sacrifices, means reconciliation. It also means expiation, the removal of sin. The question which Leviticus, and especially the Day of Atonement at center, answers is, how is it that man and God can be reconciled given the realities of sin? And that is a reality that Exodus especially highlights. God gives the law, and what happens? Israel breaks it. And she stands on shaky ground, you might say, with God at this very moment. The question which God now answers is, how, how can we now go on with God? That is the great question the book answers. And thus it is a book, as I've already said, full of grace and mercy to sinners. Let me give you the first quote from Bonar, first of very many, I think, in the sermons to come. He says, the gospel of the grace of God with all that follows in its train may be found in Leviticus. This is the glorious attraction of the book to every reader who feels himself a sinner. And here indeed were the instructions to the anxious sinner among the Jewish people in those days who longed to dwell in the courts of the Lord, like the sons of Korah, later stated in Psalm 84, and who longed thereby to experience peace and reconciliation from God. Central to this concern, that of atonement, is the importance not just of the sacrifice, but of the blood. And this is something that will come out again and again in the course of the preaching of this book. I would just briefly notice by way of introduction uh, what is said in Leviticus 17, verse 11, for li the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Very similar to what is said later on in Hebrews, that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. The blood is what secures remission. The blood is what makes atonement. And there will be uh, ample opportunity, I suppose, for us to consider that theme together. Let us just notice it here by way of introduction. Atonement through the priesthood and offering the blood unto the Lord. But a second major theme, there are four, by the way, that I want to consider here. The first being atonement. The second major concern of the book is that of the sovereignty of God and divine worship. Here is you might say, uh, a manual of worship, a directory of worship, quite literally, just as we have uh, constructed one ourselves. Well, here the Lord gave one to Israel. 
When I say sovereignty of God in divine worship, it is, I, I mean that uh, God is prescribing the kind of worship that pleases him and that he finds acceptable. He is the Lord. He is sovereign. He is the one who determines and gets to decide the kind of worship that he accepts, the kind of worship that is agreeable to his will and that he finds acceptable and agrees even with his nature as one who is holy and just and merciful and so forth. Worship, that is, which exceeds in satisfying the demands of his own justice and righteousness, as well as his desire to be merciful and gracious to the sinner. Now, what kind of worship might achieve that? Here God gives the answer. It is a worship which focuses upon the work of atonement. A worship which at the same time, we'll see as a third theme, though I'm not there just yet, instills in the people an overwhelming sense of the holiness of God. This is not something, a worship so lofty or loftily considered that man in his wisdom or might is able to devise on his own. Only the wisdom of God set forth in his own laws and institutions could ever commend and achieve such worship. And so what we find here, in essence, uh, very simply, under the old covenant is the way a sinner might approach God in in an acceptable manner. For here, the way into his presence is set forth in the old covenant. Just as Jesus is said to be the new and living way into God's presence in the new covenant. Well, here was the old and living way into God's presence by which the saints of old were bid to come. And as a way to underscore this point, I said that the book is nearly full of God's speech, but not quite. There is a little bit of narrative, just a little bit. And as a way to underscore this point, uh, there are a couple narrative episodes. The point being that God prescribes sovereignly the way of worship that he finds acceptable There are two narrative episodes where God pinpoints, or excuse me, where Moses pinpoints this did not happen. And what were the consequences of this? The first incident uh, is the incident of Nadab and Abihu, these two priests who offered strange fire. And the Lord made short work of them. He was not pleased with the worship that broke his will, the worship of man. He was only pleased with worship That was according to his will. There is another incident uh, very similar to that that we read of in chapter 24. Again, answering the question and underscoring this overarching point. What happens to those who profane God's worship? Those who disregard and break his laws. This also comes out, by the way, now this returns to the speech of God, but in chapter 26, when uh, for a lengthy portion, God outlines the covenant curses that will fall upon those who do not regard the laws of God. And so God is sovereign in his worship. That's the second major point. But the third one is that of holiness. And I was beginning to speak of that under the the second point. Let me speak of it now. It is often said, uh, although I think now I am prepared to say that this is wrong. It is it is often said uh, to be the primary theme of the book. Uh, Though I think the fourth thing I'm going to say actually is the primary theme. And this is uh, secondary to that and subservient to it. Nevertheless, holiness... uh, occupies a central place in the book. 
Now, what do we mean by holiness and how does holiness uh, appear in the book of Leviticus? Well, holiness can be conceived in many respects. Uh, First of all, holiness is something which is innate in God and, and, and apparent to man. God is one who dwells in his own holiness and he may only be approached by way of holiness. That is a major, major impression which, uh, which Leviticus makes upon us. The Lord's holiness is that which sanctifies us and makes us fit to dwell in his presence. Again, we're speaking here of God's holiness before we speak of the holiness of man. And this kind of holiness must be defined. This is how I would define it, though this is the sort of thing that's elusive. How does one even define it? And I'm not sure I'm aware of a fully satisfying uh, definition. Voss's definition was woefully inadequate, in my opinion. I thought I might give you his, but it didn't satisfy me. It was something like all of that uh, about God that makes him separate from humanity. This is my definition. God's holiness is the perfection of his own nature. The perfection of his own nature. Or the glory of his divinity. Now here I'm, I'm, I'm working a little bit and interacting with Voss's definition. All that separates him from that which is common and earthly and especially sinful. Why? Because he is perfect. He's perfectly glorious in his divinity. And so holiness is that specific quality about God that separates him from sinners considered as such and makes sinners unfit to dwell in his presence. And yet it is the holiness of God which he proposes through the rituals of Leviticus to impart to man, especially by way of sacrifice. The sacrifices had the effect of imparting God's holiness to man in two senses, so says Voss, whether by expiation, the removal of sin, or by consecration, the setting apart of man by sacred ritual, equipping him to dwell in the presence of God. This is the sense we get uh, when the sacrifices occurred in the consecrating of the priest, which we'll read of in this book. Now, holiness considered like this is either innate as it is in God or it is put on as it is in the priesthood or others or if not put on imparted but holiness also has an ethical sense and perhaps this is primarily what we mean or think of when we say the word holiness when we speak of a man who is holy or the life of holiness and Leviticus has a great deal to say about that as well it prescribes the old covenant path of holiness that of turning from sin and that of observing God's laws, his ordinances, his institutions. Who is the man, if you think of it, who is holy? The answer, always according to the Bible, is he who turns from the way of sinners and he who holds fast and adheres and keeps the laws of God. Especially, let us underscore this because we're quick to forget this, especially with respect to worship. God's worship is always primary in his own, uh, let us say, legal mind. In the giving of his law, it ought to be primary in our minds as well. It is the thing he is most concerned to safeguard. And the man who is holy is the man who is concerned to safeguard that as well. This is a major, major impression Leviticus will make upon us. 
Another way that we could put uh, holiness with respect to worship is the manner in which we worship, since by worship we worship a God that is holy. And a spirit of holiness is that which acknowledges his holiness with reverence and awe and submission. In all these respects, we see that holiness may be personal, as it is with God or with individuals. It may be corporate, as it was supposed to be in the people of God. And that holiness may also be ministerial, as it was in the case of the priests, men who were set apart for sacred tasks. But finally, and perhaps this really is the grand theme of the book and the great purpose of the book, and that is of communion with God in the Edenic sanctuary. Communion with God in the Edenic sanctuary. I'm speaking of the Garden of Eden when I speak like that. The idea that as man had lost his ability to commune with God in the sanctuary of the garden, and that is precisely how the Pentateuch begins, the tragedy of the fall which we saw in the morning. So he found it again in the sanctuary of the tabernacle. What was lost now was found. A new Eden of sorts where communion with God was once more set forth as the goal of man's existence. And as found in the sanctuary of God, where God spoke to man once more in a spirit of intimacy and friendship, as he had done with Adam in the cool of the day. Now, any sense, by the way, I got that from Morales' book, any sense that I had, perhaps, that the point was overstated by Morales was dispelled when I opened Bonar's famous book from the 19th century and found him making precisely the same point, what was lost in Eden was found again in the inner room. This is what he says at the beginning of his book, that this tabernacle was God's dwelling place on earth where he met with men, the token of his returning to man after the fall. It was here that the voice of the Lord was often heard as in Eden in the cool of the day. Now, this is what helps us to understand the other three themes. The fact that God set forth in the garden, the goal of man's existence being communion with God, intimacy with God, where God might speak unto man as unto a friend. That being the proper goal, having uh, uh, set forth at the beginning of the Bible and, and, and really never lost sight of, which explains The other themes, such as holiness or sacrifice, it's holiness and sacrifice or atonement which facilitate the thing that man was seeking. And that is, again, to commune in the presence of God in his sanctuary, in his garden. Morales says the real theme of Leviticus is abundant life of joy with God in the house of God. It's dwelling with God. In the place of God where he dwells. And again we might ask. What is it that makes that possible? In a setting in which sin reigns. And sin is entered. The answer is acts of sacrifice. Expiation and consecration. It is the fact of the priesthood. It is the laws of personal cleanness. And holiness observed by the people. All of this has a way. Of opening up. The way into the sacred presence of God. God is saying if you would come into my presence. This is how you must come. 
He's opening up, again, not the new and living way, but here he's opening up the old and living way of approach into the presence of God. Just as Christ later becomes, and much more perfectly, the new and the living way. But both, let us see, both of these things, both of these ways brought man into the presence of God. And thus we're able to consider the structure of the book in the same way. Loosely loosely stated, we could divide the book in two. Chapters 1 through 16, that's part 1, deal with that which makes the approach into God's presence possible, as well as the approach itself into his presence on the Day of Atonement. Again, laws of sacrifice, laws of consecration, laws of personal cleanness, and then the sacrifice itself. All leading man into the presence of God. And then part 2, verses 17 through 27, describe on the other side of this the renewed life in the presence of God that occurs as a result. Atonement has been achieved, and now life is lived out in the courts of the Lord. Now that is a very loose characterization, but it is one which I find very helpful. Now, let me be just a little more specific. In the first section, we could divide it uh, more particularly like this. In chapters 1 through 7, you have all the various laws of sacrifice. Then in chapters 8 through 10, you have the priestly laws. In, In chapters 11 through 15, you have the personal laws of cleanness and uncleanness. And then the great central concern of the book occurs at the center with the Day of Atonement. And with that being achieved, coming to the other side in part two, chapters 17 through 20 deal with personal holiness. 21 and 22, again, consider laws of the priesthood and uh, the close chapters 23 through 27 deal with various laws and feasts to be observed by the people. In the midst of that final section, we find another crucial chapter. I've mentioned it already, but let me just say something about it here. Chapter 26 where God outlines covenant blessings and covenant curses. And I'm especially interested what he says in what he says uh, on the first side of that, the covenant blessings, because as he wraps up that section, and it's shorter than the covenant curses, but as he wraps it up, he really defines what is the goal of the book, confirming, as I'm suggesting, that communion with God in the house of God Dwelling with him in his own holiness is really the great goal of humanity. And that is precisely what man lost by his fall. This is what the Lord promises in chapter 26, verses 9 through 13, stating this in his own way. For I will look on you favorably and make you fruitful, multiply you and confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat the old harvest and clear out the old because of the new. I will set up my tabernacle among you and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. I've broken the bands of your yoke and made you walk upright. I've brought you out of Exodus or out of Egypt, rather, through the Exodus, so that you might dwell in my midst and I might set up my tabernacle among you and you might keep my law. It is exactly what we found in the garden. But something we must also consider, and I've really been alluding to this throughout, 
And that is the place of Leviticus in uh, the overall narrative of the Pentateuch. We've already seen how in the flow of, of events, the tabernacle is set up at the end of Exodus. And then God instructs Moses and the people from the tabernacle in Leviticus. But one thing I haven't said yet is the setting of the book. I said it was from the inner room that God was speaking. But let me be even more specific. The setting of the book is where? It's at Sinai. Israel is still at Sinai. And what is Sinai? Well, Sinai is the mountain of the Lord. Sinai, which occupies, you might say, if the Day of Atonement is the center of Leviticus, Sinai, the Sinai narrative, is the center of the Pentateuch. From the time the people arrive, if you just think about how many uh, chapters are devoted to this episode in Israel's history, uh, Exodus chapter 19, they remain there until Numbers chapter 10. Not just Leviticus, all of which occurs at Sinai, but half of Exodus and half of Numbers. You might say uh, a full half, nearly at least, of the book or of the Pentateuch, the whole of the Pentateuch. And so uh, seeing this, I would also note that the theme of Leviticus fits very well within the theme of the Pentateuch as a whole, since it really tells one story, which I will state again as dwelling with God in his sanctuary. And we may, in the course of the Pentateuch, locate three distinct sanctuaries of God. One is obviously the garden, a place where Adam and Eve enjoyed the special presence of God. Where God spoke to them and gave them his laws. They were there dwelling with God, precisely what the tabernacle uh, um, represented. And dwelling with God, as Voss points out, means more than just spending time together. But it actually carries with it the connotation of intimate association. A close, personal, intimate communion. To commune with God in exactly the sense that God speaks of as the goal of Leviticus in Leviticus 26. I will dwell among you. I will be your God and you will be my people. There's nothing better than that. But with this precisely being the thing that was lost. Adam and Eve not only cast out of the sanctuary. But out of the presence of God where he dwelt. And where a man was able to dwell with God. The historical quest of the Pentateuch becomes and I should say of mankind in general, returning to the abode of God. Regaining that which was lost. And that was found, again, at the second location, and that is Sinai. Israel, being freed from the bondage and darkness of Egypt, was able to meet with God at the Mount of God. And there they dwelt with God for some time, in order for God again, as he had done with Adam, to speak with man. There we also see that Israel constructed the tabernacle at Sinai, which embodied the principle that we are presently considering. But looking again at the full course of the Pentateuch, we must also go beyond Sinai and realize where were they going? Well, the land of Canaan is also set forth as the holy land, the place of blessing, like a garden flowing with milk and honey where God may be met and enjoyed. By the people. 
A place where fellowship with God was possible, but only on condition of the holiness of the people, which is why the land must be cleansed first. Getting to Israel or Canaan, the holy land, was the goal of Israel's journeys. Entering again the sanctuary of the Lord. But not just entering there, but unlike Adam in the garden. We realize that Sinai was always meant to be temporary, but the garden wasn't. And neither was the land. Israel wasn't just to get there or arrive there. She was meant to stay there. Because losing the land, which is ultimately what happens in her exiles, would mean losing God himself. Forfeiting once again what Adam himself had lost. And that is again, dwelling with God in the sanctuary of God. This is something which comes out very clearly. I won't read them, but if you were to read the second part of of Leviticus 26, where the covenant curses are uttered, the Lord especially underlines that the worst thing that could happen to Israel is precisely what would happen to Israel by her disobedience, and that is she would be expelled from the land. But there's only one final point to make, and that is principles of interpretation. How are we to understand the book of Leviticus in a way that would be edifying and obviously applicable to the people of God today? Well, one of the ways is to realize that in the Old Covenant, the the tabernacle was the place of worship. That's why I read earlier on Matthew Henry when he spoke of the ecclesiastical laws or the ordinances, ordinances of worship. And very often, by the way, if we look for the regulative principle in the Old Covenant, we look for it in the book of Leviticus, and I think for very obvious reasons. We also see the sacrifices, and since it was, uh, let me say, the place of worship, we see the sacrifices and the rituals in light of that. Those which were performed there were, for the Old Covenant saints, real means of grace. Every bit as much as the Lord's Supper and the preaching and the singing and the prayers which we participate in, are to us real means of grace. And one of the ways to make this point, since uh, their their rituals were so symbolic, much more so than ours, is to consider again two categories which were present in all the ceremonial laws of Israel. The first is that of symbolism. Every ritual considered as a sign set forth some spiritual truth that was plainly discernible to the people, or at least to the one who had faith, and which was often spelled out for the people, declared as the plain import of the thing itself. For instance, what the Lord said about the blood. He says, well, the blood in the blood is the atonement, because in the blood is the life. It, he didn't always spell it out, but he often did. He said, here's the spiritual truth, which the sign is pointing to. Much like we see in the New Covenant, the waters of baptism point to the washing and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's what we mean when we speak of the symbolism. The important thing isn't the sign, it's the reality. It's the spiritual truth, which is comprehended by faith. Well, looking at the blood again in the Old Covenant, which which is interpreted for us by God to Moses. If you think of the people in the sacrifices dealing with the blood at least the more spiritually minded, in worshiping God thereby, they didn't attach too much importance to the sign itself, but attached the greatest significance to the truth which was thereby exhibited, namely to the grace 
which was set forth and offered by means of this ritual and made available to the people. And so the priority in Israel's worship was always upon the spiritual and not upon the natural or the carnal. It was not the blood which was for them the great focus. It was rather and always man's relationship to God. It was reconciliation by the blood. Indeed, we could say it was God himself that men, by means of sacrifice, sought to lay hold of. So you have the symbolism on the one hand, but the second uh, in the signs is the presence of typology. The way in which, in other words, Christ is set forth in all of the signs and the types of the Old Covenant, especially in this book. Indeed, it was in this sense that it was said of the ceremonial law in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, that it contained a shadow of the good things to come. All of the laws here set forth the hope of something better. A new covenant and a better priesthood, not beset with all the infirmities and weakness that was so evident in the rites and the priesthood of the old covenant, even as it was prescribed in Leviticus. And so even as I'm saying that, it should become evident that the way to understand Leviticus in a way that is edifying is to read it always in tandem with the book of Hebrews. These are two books which go hand in hand. We must keep Hebrews close in hand as we seek to understand the spiritual meaning of Leviticus in the sacrifices and in the priesthood. And especially as it sets forth Christ himself, the sum and substance of the laws and the sacrifice, the laws of the sacrifices. We will learn and know the true significance of this book only when we see it as that which anticipated something far better, embodying in the life of Israel a principle which is only realized and perfected in the new covenant with the coming of Christ. And though perhaps, I said I would come back to this and I close with this, perhaps you will say, the shadow, we're dealing with the shadows, and the shadow has no use now that the substance has come. Well, if you would say that, I would answer this. I would remind you that as Christ has come to fulfill the law, that the law itself has great value in helping us to understand what Christ himself has set forth to fulfill and perfect. The new covenant does not stand on its own, but stands as the fulfillment of that which came before. And besides, are we not happy to find Christ set forth like this under the old covenant? Does it not make our hearts Burn within us to find Christ in all of Scripture. Well, that is what we are able to do as we go forward in our study of Leviticus. We have before us Christ set forth in the typology of the Old Covenant rituals and sacrifices and priesthood. And as we read it, we do so ever with an eye to the fulfillment and the perfection of those types found in Christ. And with such a heart and such a desire we will, I believe, find great profit in studying this book. And may God add his blessing as we do so. Amen. And let us respond now to God in praise. Praise unto his holiness. And as the last hymn of the month, we will sing this a cappella. Holy, holy, holy. Hymn number 87. Please stand. <laughs>